Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So every spring, mm-hmm. or I guess for two springs now, since we've just crossed the one-year mark of the two of us being on this podcast, uh, requests roll in for us to talk about the Shroud of Turin at yeah. Easter time. So last year, because we had basically just come onto the podcast as hosts, it was way too soon. <laughs> it was like three days before Easter or something. When, yeah, when people, we couldn't have wedged it in. Right. It, it would not have worked. Uh, so this year, because so many people have asked, I started on research way, way, way in advance, and it still failed. <laughs> um <laughs> Basically, there is so much research and study about the Shroud of Turin, but the quality of that research is vastly inconsistent. And as I started going through it, I realized that confirming and fact-checking everything was going to be this Herculean effort, and it was going to be the kind of effort that would need to yield a book, (laughs) not a 30-minute episode of a podcast. Yeah. So I am sad to say we do not have a Shroud of Turin episode this year. But I really didn't want to skip Easter entirely because I know how important it is to a lot of people who listen to this podcast and because we've gotten so many requests related to it that we have not been able to do anything about before. And that is what led me to dive into researching the historical context of crucifixion. So we're going to talk about the crucifixion of Jesus in this episode, but the biggest focus is really crucifixion as a practice. And crucifixion was really simultaneously very common and very taboo all over the Greco-Roman world for almost a thousand years. Which is a unique combo. Yeah. (laughs) You don't usually get a thing that is taboo and just the order of the day. Right. So, yes, we're going we're going to talk about crucifixion as a practice today and, and the history of this thing that is now such a huge part of the consciousness of a lot of people. Uh, so the historical documents mentioning crucifixion refer to it as an act carried out by so-called, quote, barbarian peoples living in southern and western Asia. And the peoples described this way included Indians, Assyrians, Scythians, who were a nomadic people from Iran. Uh, the Greek historian Herodotus also makes many references to crucifixion among the Persians. So the Greek and Roman writers alike who were writing disparagingly about these so-called barbarian uses of crucifixion were also kind of defending it among Greeks and Romans themselves. So based on kind of reconstructing all of these different references and timelines, it seems as though the practice eventually spread from Asia to Carthage and then to Rome and then from the Romans to German, Germanic and Britannic peoples who used it as a method of religious sacrifice. But it was really in Greece and Rome that crucifixion became a commonplace method of execution. And this was true from about the 6th century BCE until the 4th century CE. Uh, so that's a very long span of time. And bodies of people who were already dead were also displayed in crucifixion-like poses as a sort of posthumous humiliation. And whether someone was dying on a cross or was being placed there after death, crucifixion was regarded as just extremely shameful and horrible. Uh, people kind of write to us sometimes about applying modern sensibilities to things that were commonplace at the pa- in the past, but no, really... In Greece and Rome, 
the overwhelmingly prevailing sentiment was that that crucifixion was a really, really shameful and horrifying thing. Yet crucifixions were carried out anyway. And Greek and Roman writers and historians simultaneously wrote about how it was extremely horrific and also defended its use. Yeah. So what they were not really writing about was exactly how crucifixion was performed. Uh, it was so horrifying and shameful that people living at the time seemed like they didn't really want to go into detail about what actually happened in the process. Uh, even the four gospel accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus just say that they crucified him. They don't really describe the act of crucifixion. So there's some debate today about whether all the historical executions that are described as crucifixions were actually carried out in the way that we envision crucifixion in modern times. Right. It's simultaneously a question of whether the modern understanding of the crucifixion of Jesus applies to all the other crucifixions. Or if there were various methodologies to it. Right. So the dictionary definition and the mental image that comes to mind for most people in the Christian tradition involves being nailed to a cross, which has both an upright part and a crossbar. The person being crucified is also stripped, beaten, and mocked, and the cross itself is marked with a sign that details that person's name and the crime that they are being crucified for committing. And a lot of that common knowledge about the death of Jesus and consequently crucifixion in general comes from early Christian art and writings that were created about 200 years after the event. So they weren't really contemporary accounts. Right. Even the Gospels are were written down significantly later than Jesus actually lived. One of the earliest known visual depictions is the Alexamenos Graffito, which is a derogatory and mocking etching on a wall in Rome that dates to roughly 200 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Another etching dates from about the same time period and has some visual similarities. Yeah, these visually look like what we think of today as crucifixion. With the, It's a cross-shaped cross, basically, with a person nailed to it. Uh, But because all of these accounts, whether they are written or visual, were created so long after the crucifixion of Jesus took place, it's a little unclear how well they match up with what actually happened. And it's also unclear whether those accounts of the crucifixion of Jesus can be just applied wholesale to all the other crucifixions in history. There are some common themes that can be gleaned from existing texts about crucifixion, though. So the first is that before being crucified, the person who was being executed was generally stripped and then beaten, flogged, or otherwise tortured. The execution itself involved being tied or nailed to some kind of vertical stake, and it may or may not have had a horizontal crossbar. The person being executed also generally had to carry one of the implements of their death to the site of the execution, Although whether this was the vertical stake or the crossbar or something else hasn't really been specified in the texts that survive today. The the sort of thing that people imagine is that it's the crossbar. Right. So uh, we know that crucifixions usually happened in public in heavily trafficked places. They were as much about publicly displaying the person being executed as about executing and punishing them. Yes. And there was also usually a sign uh, on the cross or nearby detailing who was being crucified and why. And it is not a big leap of logic to um, uh, guess that crucifixion led to a very slow and very agonizing death. 
depending on the person's health and physical state at the time of being crucified, it could take days. And we don't really have autopsy records to go on. There have been some various theories over the years, but at this point, the general consensus is that the person's death ultimately came from coronary failure or lung collapse. And this is in part because being suspended in the way that people were suspended during crucifixion makes it really hard for the rib cage to expand enough to take a good deep breath. And if the executioners wanted to speed things along, they would break the person's legs. And this would induce shock and it would speed up the rate of respiratory decline. And the person being crucified could no longer support themselves with their legs long enough to assist in taking a good breath. After death, a crucified person was normally also denied burial and was instead fed to birds and wild animals or just left hanging there to rot and be fed upon by scavengers. Humans are really good at devising really horrible things to do to each other. I know. It's I just that's what I constantly think of when looking through these notes. I'm like, we're terrible creatures. Uh there was widespread acknowledgement, as we said, that crucifixion was a cruel, horrifying, and humiliating practice, but it continued to be practiced anyway. Uh, sometimes because of its cruelty, and sometimes out of the idea that such a horrifying and shameful death would discourage others from committing the same offenses. Persia, Greece, Carthage, and Rome all crucified people for similar reasons, which included treason and other crimes against the state. Pacifying and demoralizing conquered nations or rebels within a a nation's own borders or punishing and persecuting political and religious dissenters. Carthage also crucified high ranking military leaders who failed in battle. And Greece and Rome also crucified robbers and pirates and pirates sometimes crucified their victims. In Rome, crucifixion was thought of as the supreme punishment. Uh, The next two layers of punishment in terms of severity were burning and decapitation. Rome also sometimes used crucifixion as a form of popular entertainment, kind of similar to throwing someone to the lions. And sometimes Rome performed crucifixions as part of this big violent uh, spectacle that would include crucifixions, throwing people to wild animals, uh, and fights between gladiators. And crucifixion was such an abhorrent punishment that in Rome, it wasn't usually performed on citizens, at least unless they committed a crime so heinous that a crucifixion was deemed warranted. Instead, Romans usually crucified slaves, so many slaves that it was referred to as a slave's punishment. And Romans also uh, were open to crucifying foreigners. Yeah, people who didn't have the civil rights that were kind of conferred by being Roman citizens were, for the most part, the people that Rome crucified. There were many others. And before we talk about that, would you like to take a moment and have a word from our sponsor? So let's return to the subject of of crucifixion and talk about some of the people who were crucified during this almost thousand year time span. The most well-known crucifixion today, of course, is that of Jesus of Nazareth, whose crucifixion was ordered by Pontius Pilate. Two criminals were crucified along with him. And today, Jesus' death on the cross is a crucial part of the Christian faith because of the idea that Jesus died for the sins of all mankind. But in the first years after the crucifixion, it was actually an added source of persecution for early Christians. 
We've said so many times in this episode that crucifixion was loaded with shame and horror. And in the minds of many who were not of the Christian faith, the idea that a divine being could have been put to such a death was just absurd. So it completely discredited their faith. Yeah. Today it's sort of part of, it's one of the important parts of of faith and of Christianity. Uh, but as Christianity as a religion was sort of getting started uh, early a lot of early Christians were heavily persecuted by people around them. And this became sort of a source of ridicule and mocking and uh, attempts to discredit Christianity as a faith. Um, there were many, many, many other people who were crucified as well, though. Uh, and this is sort of a list of highlights. We're going to start with in the 6th century BCE in ba- and Babylon, Darius I, who was the king of Prussia, ordered the crucifixion of about 3,000 political opponents. In the 2nd century BCE, slaves were crucified en masse in response to a slave rebellion. At the end of the Second Punic War in 201 BCE, Scipio Africanus the Elder punished Roman deserters by crucifying them. And as we said before, Rome didn't normally crucify its own citizens, but their treason was deemed to be a big enough infraction to basically revoke that protection of citizenship. In 88 BCE, Alexander Janius, who was a high priest and king of Judea, crucified 800 Pharisees, who were also his political opponents. The Roman general, Publius Quinctilius Verus, crucified about 2,000 Jews in the first century CE due to a rebellion. Nero ordered many crucifixions, including many early Christians, as part of a campaign of religious persecution. Also during Nero's reign, the Senate revived an older custom of executing all of a household's slaves, usually by crucifixion, if the head of that household was murdered. Flaccus, governor of Egypt, employed crucifixion in the persecution of Jews. So this went on, like we've said, for a very, very long time. And a lot of people were put to death by crucifixion. The general consensus is that Emperor Constantine was the one who put an end to crucifixion, although there is some debate about that today. It's pretty clear that he really wanted to put a stop to crucifixion, and it does look like officially sanctioned crucifixions did end after uh, he made this directive. But it also seems like the practice itself continued without it being something that was allowed at that point. Right. There are also as many things. Yeah, as with you could say we're not things. doing that anymore, but it takes a while for it to really be eradicated. Yeah. Well, and then also the practice was was introduced into other cultures later in history and was practiced uh sort of after having learned it from uh from history or from uh Roman example. Um but I didn't really get into that in this particular episode cuz I really I wanted to focus on it. It's Heyday seems like a flippant word, but that whole era in Rome and Greece when it was just like the way that people were executed for a whole lot of different things. Yeah. Um, it's interesting to read the, the points of view of the people who were writing about it at the time who would very spontaneously be decrying it as a terrible thing to do and then just sort of resignedly accepting that it was something that needed to be done in order to basically keep people in their place. Yeah. It was this sort of idea of, well, if we stop crucifying people, there'll be lots of crime and dissent, and that doesn't sound good. The man who wrote several of the things that I read researching this episode, whose name was Gunnar R. Samuelson, wrote a whole book that was sort of about 
uh, crucifixion and the, the historical context of crucifixion, which when the book came out, a lot of news- newspapers completely mischaracterized in like very sensational headlines. So if if you ever read them and got maybe very angry at this person for having made uh, seemingly blasphemous statements, that's not really what the book is about. The book is a lot more about what happened and how do we know what happened and what was the historical context for this. Right. Which, even having learned so, so much about uh, the role that the crucifixion plays in uh, a lot of modern Christianity, I had no idea of sort of its place in its society. Yeah. Yeah. Or how much of um, like the, the image that comes to mind when we say crucifixion, how much of that comes from later uh, later writings and artwork. Uh, and it's a little unclear how well those reflect uh, what happened at the time, which doesn't lessen right anything at all. But uh, there are some things that we sort of take for granted now that may or may not have happened the way that we imagine them. Yeah. All right. All right. Let's... Do you have a uh, slightly peppier listener mail? It kind of is peppier in a way. It's, it's also uh, related to distressing subject matter, but is kind of uplifting uh, in what it's about. This is from Terry, and it is on our episode, uh, our two-part episode on Rosa Parks. Uh, Terry says, Hi, Holly and Tracy. I've been catching up on podcasts and just listened to the Rosa Parks double. I'm so glad to hear someone talk about the backstory that led Rosa to the place where she ended up and her previous involvement in the movement. So often that's all glossed over and all we hear is she didn't stand up without any mention of how the buses really worked or that she was involved in the NAACP and had been to nonviolence training. However, I was sad that you missed a real opportunity to name another woman who was 99% forgotten in the midst of the story. You talked extensively about the leaflets advertising the bus boycott, but nary a mention of the woman who made them happen literally overnight. Joanne Robinson snuck into the school office and mimeographed 35,000 leaflets at 3 a.m. And then later, when she talked about it with the administrator, he chose not to discipline her, though he could not find his way to taking a public stand. These two people, in many ways, made the boycott possible and a success, and they are left out of the story. Perhaps an episode on Joanne is in order? Maybe someday. Uh, thank you so much for all you do to inform and entertain us. I love listening and learning with you. Peace, Terry. Mimeographing. I know, I suddenly have like sense memories I know. just instantly. Uh, I would imagine that we have listeners who are young enough that they, uh, they had all their things in school Xeroxed. Yeah. Uh, if you, if you don't really know, uh, mimeographs printed this like purpley Mm-hmm. Uh, onto paper, it had a very particular smell that Holly and I are both remembering right now. It was also extremely fiddly and cantankerous technology that could go terribly awry. So the idea of mimeographing 35,000 leaflets at 3 o'clock in the morning. I wonder how long it took. Away. I don't know. It would depend on whether, like, the how? machine got jammed <laughs> or whether, you know, the, the fluid yeah. had been pumped correctly. Like, oh, yeah, mimeograph. that is a task. Oh, I mean, I remember teachers complaining about, you know, just mimeographing our our 30 quizzes for the day. Yeah, me too. Distinctly. Yeah. Or like when they would hand out packets. Uh, There were a couple times that I remember in school where we had to share packets because the teacher just got fed up and was done with fighting with the mimeograph machine. Right. Uh, It conjures, uh, like I said, instant sense memories of like that smell. And yeah, if we um, 
I, w- I will see if I can find for, for those those listeners who may have never had mimeograph things in school. Uh, I will see if I can find some some cool things about mimeograph machines and, and maybe put them in our show notes cool. or, or on our Facebook or something. So, uh, yes, thank you so much, Terry. If you would like to write to us about this or any other subject, you can. We are at History Podcast at Discovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at history. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and our Pinterest is pinterest.com slash history. If you are tired of hearing Mist in History, we're going to say it one more time. <laughs> now we have a whole website of our very own and it is at mistinhistory.com so you can come and, and all of our show notes and our, all of our episodes are all right there. We're also building a big network of tags to uh, make it easier to find episodes that are subjects that you want to listen to. So you can come and explore all of that. If you would like to learn about one of the punishments that gradually replaced crucifixion once it had been outlawed, you can come to our website and put the word hanging in the search bar. You will find the article, How Does Death by Hanging Work? You can do all of that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.